Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. What's up, fam? This is Jay from Push Black. Let's talk real quick. Now, it's no secret that the economic system is rigged against us. It's hard to get ahead, and that's by design. But we're not stuck. We have more power than you might think. And that's why Push Black is launching a new podcast called Building Black Dollars. On this show, we address the daily issues Black folks face financially and the actions we can take right now to solve those problems. We're tackling topics like savings, investing, homeownership, and debt management. And we're answering questions about all of this from listeners just like you. Upping our financial literacy is how we make sure our individual financial houses are in order. But let's be clear, individual Black wealth won't save our people is going to take a collective effort. So we're talking about how we can use cooperative economics to build our own system within the larger economy. So if you're trying to get your money right, tune in to Building Black Dollars by Push Black. Catch it anywhere you listen to podcasts. Let's start building together, folks. Peace. Tell me, what does it mean to love and be black? In the Western world, attempts to erase the beauty of black love persist. Anti-black misconceptions tell us that black men aren't even interested in black women and that black women don't even want to marry in the first place. Love is far more complicated than that. Black love is bigger than that. We just gotta unearth the weeds to get to our roots. I'm Jay from Push Black, and you're listening to Black History Year. White supremacy has systematically broken the heart of Black America. Its toxic presence in Black love has, for generations, harmed our self-concept and even how we view each other. History tells another story, though. In a world before white oppression met West and Central Africa, our ancestors touched the power of love, making it possible for us to reconnect and touch it too. Today's guest is gonna help us get to the heart of the matter. Dr. Diane Stewart is a professor of religion and African-American studies at Emory University. Inspired by her research and teachings in black love studies, Much of her work examines the structural forces that across four centuries have made coupling and marriage difficult for black folks. Before we sit down with Diane, let's learn the story of a woman.
the young woman was convinced her heart would jump out of her chest. She was about to make the biggest decision of her life, and it was all about Black love. The year is 1498, and Ada, a young woman in Sierra Leone, is in the midst of a life-defining ceremony. After much prayer, discussion, and assessing the community's needs, a suitable life partner was chosen for her. She was to decide whether to accept the proposal or refuse it to pursue another path. Her father smiled at her and spoke unto her blessings. He was a merchant who sold many beautiful things, like the ornate bracelet he circled around her wrist. Ada's mother kissed her forehead and placed a small pouch of fragrant herbs into her daughter's hands. Doting arms wrapped around Ada, pulling her into the familiar embrace of her older sister, Isla. Years before her sibling was born, Isla refused betrothal and lived life with a joy she prayed her sister would experience on whatever path she took. Now it was Ada's time to cross this rite of passage. The elders began to chant around her. It was nearly time to give the community her answer. Ada closed her eyes. She imagined her grandmother, present only in spirit, but a strong matriarch whose marriage and children would lead to many generations ahead. The chanting stopped. Ada fell to her knees and she parted her lips to say, I have searched my heart, my mind, and my soul. She swallowed hard. My choice is love. What does Black liberation look like to you? You know, it's really interesting. The first thing I was thinking about as you were phrasing the question, the first person that came to my mind is Malcolm X. And I used to say that I I believe that as Malcolm X emerged and grew and blossomed, um, one of the reasons I love Malcolm X and someone like W.E.B. Du Bois is that they never remained... Uh, uh, fixed and located in one ideological position. They grew. They were truth seekers. So they grew over time. And I used to say, I used to feel that Malcolm X achieved to me what Black life could look like, what a Black person could be like if we had come here on our own, not through slavery. And so on one level, Black liberation kind of looks like that to me. It looks like a freedom to truly be who you are. And to, to, to do that, it means you must be connected to your heritage. I have a section on in my Black Love course um, on heritage love. And we read Philippe Wamba's Kinship for that course. And it's a powerful experience for all the students. And for me, heritage love is crucial, it's critical to Black liberation. And for heritage, I mean where we are from, where our ancestors are rooted. And I mean, all of those Black ancestors. So here, whether it's Mississippi or Hartford, Connecticut, where I grew up, or Kingston, Jamaica, or St. Anne, Jamaica, or the West Coast of Africa, or West Central Africa, that heritage love is critical to our liberation. But it also means self-love, and it means community love. 
Love is the foundation for anything pro-social we want to accomplish. If we do not receive love, and this is why romantic love, which is the basis or some sort of commitment to love and to the building of family is the basis of what we need, the bonding and connection that we need to be pro-social persons in society, to actually survive as a species. So love is essential to liberation. Love gives us the qualities we need to liberate ourselves. It gives us a sense of our own dignity and our worth. And once a person has a true and authentic sense of their dignity and worth, which is inestimable, it is unmeasurable. Once a person truly is in touch with that, they can do nothing but seek liberation if they are in bondage. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast so how does your work contribute to helping us move towards that vision of black liberation that you shared sure well another aspect of our ability to love ourselves and to truly be liberated has to do with our tortured relationship with our African religious slash spiritual heritage or heritages. And what I mean by that is one of the enduring effects of the colonial slave holding experience, right? Or experience of being reduced to slaves, to commodities, that produced commodities for the ruling white classes. One of the enduring effects of that was convincing people of African descent that we were godless people before we engaged um, their version of Christianity, that Christianity is the only authentic religion that all people are in need of a, 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 a redemption that Christians um, understand in a particular way, and that Africans had no conception of the divine, that Africans had 
um, in fact, partnered with the devil in their, um, oftentimes uh, it is conceived as sorcery or witchcraft or quote-unquote black magic. And that is the furthest thing from the truth. And so for me, part of our liberation means getting right with our spiritual heritages as well. And for me, it doesn't matter what people profess to believe in, whether it's Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, it doesn't matter what people profess to believe in. What we miss in terms of our understanding of Africana religious history, and this is what my first book tried to do looking at um, a country like Jamaica, what we miss is that it was the African spiritual traditions, even Christianity and Islam, interpreted through an African cosmological or spiritual lens that liberated our ancestors. You can show me no slave revolt, no attempt at a revolt, and there is not a conjure woman or a conjure man involved or an obia man or an obia woman involved or some sort of mystical way of engaging the powers of the universe that are beyond what we understand to be Orthodox Christianity. You know, because of our... our our socialization, we've often over-Christianized people like Nat Turner. We've over-Christianized many of these people. It doesn't matter what titles they went by, Baptist preacher, what have you. They were deeply rooted in African spiritual traditions and ways of engaging power. And, um, and so that's one of the ways my research can help us to be liberated. I'm not interested in saying that there's anything perfect about any religious system, including African ones. There's nothing perfect about any religious system. And all religious systems afford people the opportunity to abuse and violate others. When people give their themselves over to a religious authority because they trust that religious authority, there is always that opportunity. We've seen those kinds of violations all the time. But the scapegoat African religions, as if they are somehow the epitome of evil and deprivation and, and demonism, is just absolutely wrong. And to call behaviors and activities um, African religion that are not, that are just criminal, is also just wrong. So I am very, very interested in helping Black people embrace the fullness of their spiritual heritage. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle, from the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback. There's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. You've written a book that goes deep into these ideas you've touched on and how they show up through our history. 
Tell me more about that. Yes. In my book, Black Women, Black Love, America's War on African-American Marriage, what became clear to me, and Jay, I originally was, I started out doing focus groups of Black women, um, 10 to 12 women, different generations, different ages. And as I began to read and, and, and listen to what I was hearing, I realized that I can't even write a book like that. What I have to do is show my audiences how what I call forbidden Black love, and what I mean by forbidden Black love, I'm referring to the structures and systems that make love, coupling, and marriage difficult, delayed, or impossible for millions of Black people. And I realized that I needed to name that. I needed to name marriage as a civil rights problem that has been unrecognized in this country. African-Americans did not have the right, or people of African descent in this country had no marital rights before the end of slavery. They did not have the right to marry. Even if they did or were permitted to by slave owners, it was not a right. Their marriages were not recognized ultimately as legitimate. And so marriage is a civil right. We often forget that because we, we, it's an intimate experience. It's personal. And we talk about all of the personal aspects of it and what it means to connect with someone and love someone and build a life. But it's regulated by the government. It is a civil right. And if we're not aware, if we forget that, just look at the LGBTQ movement and tell me it's not a civil right. So we have supposedly the civil right to pursue happiness as citizens of this country, to pursue happiness through love and marriage, yet millions of Black people have had that stifled away from them by no fault of their own. And so I realized that this problem just doesn't start with mass incarceration. It doesn't start in the 1960s where we see the numbers dip significantly. We see a steep decline in African-American marriages. It really begins on the West Coast of Africa, the shores of Africa, on those slave ships where African women, the average age of an African woman was 15. Most of these women coming on slave ships were married. Most of these men coming on slave ships were married. And they were torn away, ripped away from their families and their children. So it begins there. And it continues in slavery. It continues in the period that I call the reign of terror, 100 years of sheer terror, from 1865 to 1965, it continues when Black women are beginning to, first of all, be allowed to benefit from welfare programs um, in the late 1950s into the 1960s. It continues into mass incarceration, the rise of the prison industrial complex in the 1980s, and it continues today. And so, what I, what I want my audiences to understand is that love is a key to liberation. And Jay, by the end of the piece, I could only argue that unless we turn a corner on three major issues, we will not address this unrecognized civil rights dilemma in the African-American community. Um, which so many of us are yearning to have addressed. I, I'll say this, though, as a caveat. My book focused on 
heterosexual marriage. I am a cisgendered heterosexual woman. And I do include some of my experiences in the book. And so I wanted to write from the experience that I know. And my uh, my book does speak to Black women, but it speaks to Black men. I'm not only telling the story of Black women, I'm also telling the story of Black men. And I'm also situating white American patriarchy as a significant structure that has harmed not just Black women, but also Black men and Black marriages. Um, And so if we, first of all, I show that the way forbidden Black love has been launched and sustained has been through four major pillars. Now, there are others, but these are the four that I saw showing up, cropping up over and over. First, the separation of Black marriages and families, Jay. Second, racist, sexist jurisprudence. And I hyphenate racist, sexist. Those go together. Black women experience racism in a particular way because we are defined as women. Black men experience racism and white supremacy in a particular way because they're defined as men. So racist, hyphen, sexist jurisprudence, policies, and legal transactions. Three, sexual and reproductive violence and control. And four, colorism and phenotypic stratification, what I call CPS. And and colorism is a form of phenotypic stratification. But when we think of colorism, we often think of skin color. But there are other forms of phenotypic stratification, how one's nose looks, the the curl pattern, the texture of one's hair, um, the shape of one's body, Um, the shape of one's forehead, all of those kinds of features play a role. So that's why I, I, I say colorism, which is the main thing that we have struggled with, but also other forms of phenotypic stratification. So I trace that. Um, and, and those are some of the major ways that forbidden black love has been, have been, has been sustained. But then to turn a corner on it, Jay, this is part of the liberation piece. I, I actually concluded something that I never expected to conclude. I concluded that the most important issue we must address is what I call inherited poverty and wealthlessness. Inherited poverty and wealthlessness. Yes, that is the most important issue if we're going to turn the corner on this. We must also dispense with the white American, which has some seeped so deeply into our culture as well, Black culture in America, um, the, the idealization of the patriarchal nuclear family. And then third, we must address colorism and phenotypic stratification in our community and in the wider nation. So those are paths to liberation. And And let's face it, if we put Black love, marriage, and family formation at the center of any policy issue in this country, we're going to address so many more issues. If we look, if we situate Black love, marriage, and family formation as the civil rights problem that it is, we will address it totally differently. It was not enough, Jay, for people like Steve Harvey, whether we agree with his prescriptions or not, for others, um, and we have other people like Kevin Samuels and others talking about high-status Black men and women. You know, I have my own critiques of that kind of work. It was not enough for people to come along with these self-help prescriptions. In fact, they were at times dangerous. 
they could give the impression that the reason Black women have no options for love and marriage is because they're just not good enough. They're just not doing enough. They're just not fixing themselves. And what my book aimed to do was to show that it is the systems and structures that we need to look at and address in order to overcome this problem. Now, Jay, I am not saying, I am not saying in any way, shape, or form that we should not work on ourselves. All persons should work on themselves forever. That should be a personal project throughout our entire life. We should be growing, changing our bad habits all the time. We should be doing that. So that's a given. But it's deceptive to give the impression that if Black women just make themselves more competitive in the dating and marriage market, everything will be will work out for them. No, that's not the case. And that's what my book attempted to set right and to show that this is a 400-year issue across the centuries. And we're still dealing with it from slavery to the era of social media. So in looking at it from that 400-year timeline, Interested in picking up on a point that you um, you led with in terms of how it started on the, the West Coast of Africa and connecting that to this concept you brought up of heritage love. So what did our love relationships, family relationships look like prior to us being ripped away from that? It's a great question. Um, it, it's, it seems as if globally... Romantic love is a new concept, right? It's a new concept. It wasn't even part of Western tradition traditionally in, in terms of new concept. Not romantic love, I know, has existed all over the world for all time. But in terms of it being the foundation for marriage, that is a 19th century kind of invention or discovery, so to speak, even in the West. And so... What we had in, in many African contexts was a concept of, of what it means to build families and lineages and to join communities through marriage. That doesn't mean that romantic love was not present in marriages, but it wasn't the foundation for the building of marriages, right? Families, communities came together and they looked at the strengths, the weaknesses, the qualities of marriage age relatives and made decisions about who would be good partners for whom. And one of the things that people often get wrong, they believe that they were um, arranged marriages in the way that you see in a lot of perhaps South Asian cultures. No, what I have learned is um, the um, adolescent or the young woman had choice in whether she wanted to marry or not. This idea that these marriages were just blanket forced on people, no. Young women had choice. The young man had choice in whether they wanted to marry or not. And so marriages were, um, you know, these were rites of passage. The marriage, in many respects, was a series of ceremonies. Oftentimes, the engagement was the thing that sealed, was the kind of ceremonial rite that sealed the couple. And, and sometimes in many respects, the couple were given permission after engagement. And this was even true in Western contexts, were given permission after engagement to try to have children, 
because the whole idea would be you want to make sure that you can have children. That's the whole point, generativity of the lineage, right? So wealth in many African cultures were, you know, pre-colonial, were, uh, was measured in, in terms of persons, in terms of lineage members. And so what abundance and blessings were understood in terms of lineage members. So you you definitely wanted to make sure that there was fecundity, there was fertility, and that would have been a sign all the more that this marriage was meant to be. So the joining of a couple in many West, West Central African contexts would have been the joining of families, the joining of lineages. Um, and, and so it was a much deeper um concept. And even today, um, in many African cultures, divorce is a very, very serious thing. You don't just divorce for anything. In the West, we divorce much more facilely than you would see in a lot of African cultures and probably Asian cultures as well. And so marriage was a rite of passage to adulthood, to parenting, um, it was understood that when a person was ready for marriage, they were ready for a host of adult responsibilities to help. I like to say, you know, in the West, they talk about, uh, in Christianity, they talk about original sin. I like what Professor, the late, great Ebusi Bulaga says, that it's not that Africans in their spiritual context have original sin, but you must pay your debt to humanity. You must, and paying your debt to humanity is achieving all of the rights that you should achieve, including marriage, um, to move through those rites of passage and become a useful adult in your community who is responsible and contributes to the community in a number of ways, which includes giving birth to children, raising children, and being a mentor and um, a leader in one's community. So that is what it means to pay one's debt to humanity, to prepare oneself for the right of death and ancestorhood. And ultimately, in many cultures, a re reincarnation in the family lineage. So marriage, um, marriage looked very, very differently um, than it does today. It wasn't this idea of just two individuals doing an individual thing. It was joining a families. It was doing a service for the and the community. That's right. Mm. And household arrangements were different. That's one of the reasons I propose that we should get rid of this concept of head of household. This is part of white Western patriarchal thinking about marriage. Did Africa have patriarchy? At some point it did. Did it look like Western patriarchy? No. Did Africa have matricentricity, what I call, well, motherness, what um, other African scholars have called modernity? Yes. And African patriarchy did not snuff out matricentricity, the matrifocal family unit. It did not. It lived alongside of it. There's a kind of totalizing feature to Western patriarchy that is almost, it feels impossible to overcome. It pervades everything. There was, there was a balance, maybe even a competition in some African societies by the time patriarchy made its way into African societies. And so, and of course, with colonialism, we get the overlay of not just African patriarchy, but Western patriarchy, which is just devastating, devastates African culture. So even the household looked different. You don't necessarily have men. You sometimes have polygamous marriages as well, right? Or you have 
um, polygynous marriages, you know, men with more than one wife. And so you don't always have this nuclear patriarchal household. Uh, sometimes what you have are these matrifocal household units with mother and children in a compound situation. So yes, they look very different, very different than what we have today. Many different kinds of marriages. Let's dig a little deeper on. So I've read about this concept of, you know, complementary and balance when it came to men and women relationships in uh, West and West Central Africa, where I think it touches on what you were getting to, where it's not necessarily uh, that one person was more important or had more value, but it was a different type of thing that you brought to the table, whether it was from the economic perspective or the physical or emotional perspective. Um, does this come up in your work as, as it relates to this at all? Well, yes. Um, honestly, it's it's. I'm going to write about it a lot more in the second volume. I really want to explore what, you know, a term that I introduced in this first volume, Africana kinship structures, because some of those traditions are still with us. They're most um, recognizable in poor and working class Black communities. But some of those, they are wholesome. We have unfortunately pathologized them in the West, but they are wholesome. They are powerful structures and systems. I just argue in the book that we can't have kinship wealth without financial wealth. When we only have kinship wealth, then those structures can sometimes be burdensome because there's not enough financial wealth to go around. And one person or the few people with a little bit of resources are expected to do everything for the whole kin group. And that's tough. And so that's one of the reasons I argue that we've got to solve the wealthlessness problem that America imposed on people of African descent. But I'll say this, one of the problems, Jay, that we have with understanding what we're dealing with when we're, when we're investigating African history is the overlay of Islamic culture and traditions and Western Christian culture and traditions. Most of us are doing work on African societies and we're not penetrating the impact of those traditions on African cultures. This is why in many respects during the 19... 70s, late 60s and 70s, when you had a, a strong rise of Black cultural nationalism. And many Black feminists have critiqued this, that many of the Black men who were saying, you know, this is how our African ancestors lived and this is what we're supposed to be doing. What they were really doing, Jay, what they were resurrecting these Eurocentric Victorian ideas about you know, the, the, the role of women and the role of men in communities and family life. They were not African ideas, right? And even if they thought they were, if you're looking at what's going on in contemporary Africa, you have those Victorian ideals as well. So it requires, a, one of the things I'm going to do is develop a syllabus. And I tell you, in order to really understand and access um, the information, Jay, we have to get into what the archaeologists are doing. We have to get into what the archaeological anthropologists are doing when they're digging, when they're uh, when they're kind of digging up, excavating African cultures. I'll give you a great example. Many people today would find that African girls, adolescent girls, would be very shy about anything that has to do with sex education or, 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 you know, it's like this is like a taboo subject. You don't talk about it. Well, when I went to visit Great Zimbabwe about 10 years ago, one of the things that the archaeologists that they have dug up are these, these kind of sexual figurines 
And scholars believe that these were used in the, in the ancient Zimbabwe um, to, to, for sex education, for training girls and boys about their bodies, about sex and sexuality. I mean, who would have known? Right. So we have to do a different kind of research to even know what's happening. And I'm building a bibliography right now. And I think one of the people that we really need to read who was isolated and certainly not in black nationalist communities, but was isolated generally from the West. It was only the Russian scholars that would pay attention to him is Sheikh Anta Diop. I think he does incredible work on uh, uh, black. Uh, well, he uses the language of matriarchy at times. I like matricentricity and and the import of patriarchy, the kind of you know the rise of patriarchy. So he's going way, way, way back. And so one of the things we have to ask when we're ask, when we're investigating these questions is what period of Africa, which cultures. What time period within the particular culture, right? It, it's, it's, it's complicated. It's, yes, it's, it's different, but we have a long way to go to know and understand those differences. And the ways that we have been studying African heritages and cultures, I believe, have just enthralled us and trapped us within more mythology than, in many respects, reality. We need a new bibliography. We need a new methodology for wrapping our minds around what these pre-colonial cultures were really about. You gave the example of cultural naturalism to start this sort of segment of the conversation. And I think that's a helpful context. From what I'm hearing you say, we may have looked at a certain time period that may not have been, we may not have gone far back enough, or we may not have been able to separate, you know, what exists now that's originally and truly and wholly from the African mind uh, and what has been brought on to it by you mentioned Western Christianity and and Islam. Am I understanding that? Absolutely. Overall? Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah. I think uh, I appreciate you bringing up the work of uh, Geop. I think one of the books I've read most of is, uh, I believe, The Cultural Unity of Black Africa, mm-hmm. which I think gets to what you're talking about, about the um, matrilineal element of this. Yes. So the bibliography needs to be expanded in order for us yes. to um, actually dig deep enough to do the work we need to do today. And African feminists and women and scholars have really done some good work. Ifiama Dwime, um, Oyerunke Oyewumi. There's, um, uh, uh, what's her name? She passed away. She's an Igbo scholar, and she called herself a womanist. Um, it is slipping my mind right now. But there are scholars who have done this work. Um, there are a group of them who are calling themselves, they, 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 they define what they call motherism. They don't want to use feminism. But no matter what the labels are, they are doing some fascinating work. There's a, there's a, um, a professor of English, actually, who looked at, let me give you another example, who looked at, I mean, this is just fascinating. Her name is Janine De Lombardo, and I think she's a white woman, actually. But she looked at the letters of Black women coming from Hampton and Spelman in the very early 20th century, 1908, 1910, going over to Liberia with their husbands as missionaries. And their letters are showing that these 
indigenous people that they're engaging had no clear gender divisions. They're like, we're trying to, we're trying to get the boys to wear certain clothes that are different, that are distinct from the girls, but they don't want to. The boys want to play with dolls and the girls don't, they're, they're showing, they're trying to inculcate them in these Western patriarchal ways of being. And they're not. You know, they're not, they're, they're just, they're resisting them. It's fascinating. So here are Black people, people of African descent, coming out of slavery, going through that period of the politics of respectability, which starts after slavery, where, you know, in order to be accepted as citizens, we got to get as far away from African culture and heritage as possible. We got to prove to this country that we deserve citizenship and deserve to be treated like citizens. Therefore, we have to adopt their culture and heritage. Now taking it over to Liberia and seeing a whole different world even in that time period. So I'm just using that as an example of materials, research that has been done. We have to have the lenses to see it as well, to see the distinctions, to see pieces or elements from pre-colonial culture that are that that's still there in the culture itself. Um, and another example is the idea that, you know, this Western idea that the domestic sphere is a woman's sphere and the public sphere is a man's sphere, that is totally un-African. There's nothing African about that at all. We know that some African women were taken into slavery hundreds of miles from their home because they were, they were trading. They were traders and they were, they would go long distances from their homes trading. As women, you know, not not accompanied by men or what have you. So that's another example. This idea that oh, women are supposed to stay in the home and in the kitchen—that's just Western. It's very, very Western. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale with Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep Mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases and shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval, no minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. So in what ways um, does doing this work of, of digging and going to the scholars that have been doing this work, and if we were at scale as a community to try to put these ways of thinking, change our perspective on how we're using uh, love and relationships and dynamics in the families, what could we gain from changing our perspective and, and actions to connecting with what is, what is ours in terms of the heritage? First, we can gain a sense of peace and self-acceptance, right? We can gain a sense that we are not just lost blank slates who came from nothing and came from nowhere. We're not just, um, we're not just, our history doesn't begin with a history of being commodified, of being forced to produce commodities, of being chattel property that could be valued and sold and gifted. Our history, our history doesn't begin with that. Our history begins elsewhere. And that alone does a lot to rehabilitate our sense of belonging, our sense of power, our sense of worth, period. That alone. Two, we realize that there are different logics at work 
for why people establish certain cultural norms and traditions to to operate in a particular way. What I would say when I teach African religions, for me, the most important word, the most important word, more important than any other word is relationality. And I think that's true of many African cultures. Relationality, if you want to understand how African religious and spiritual systems work, it's always about relationality. How are you, how are you sustaining your bonds? How are you sustaining, sustaining your relationships? That's what libations are about. They're about recognizing that even though you have traveled, you have moved into the invisible domain, even though you are now in the invisible realm, you're still part of the family. You're not going to disrespect your grandparents if you go, um, if you're having a family event and your grandparents are there, you're going to serve them well. You're going to, you're going to um, make sure they get what they want to eat. You're going to. So you see that same behavior with the ancestors who've passed on. It's always about sustaining relationships. And when you think about what it means to sustain relationships, it means that you cannot be greedy and you cannot be selfish. Greed is the antonym of the most central African value, uh, according to Laurenti Majessa, and that is hospitality. That is hospitality. So it teaches us a value system. What it does is it allows for us to locate our roots somewhere, someplace, and to decide that we can remake ourselves. We can remake ourselves outside of the stereotypes, right? The caricatures that the West has developed about us. Because oftentimes what we do is a response to, it's a reaction to the caricatures and the stereotypes that they've developed about us. You say, I have to be this way, so I'm just going to be the opposite. Or you say, I am this, so I'm just going to live into it and be it. What would we be if we knew the values and the philosophy, the cosmologies of our ancestors? What would we be? How would we run our lives? How would we understand ourselves as children, as adolescents, as adults? as elders, um, I think there's unlimited opportunity, Jay, for us to rebuild a world. And I, I really believe that um, the Western values that um, created this capitalist um, way of being and living and, um, and engaging or not engaging is going to turn in on itself right it's going to turn in on itself and one of the one of the gravest dangers james baldwin um, told us about taught us about so many decades ago one of the greatest dangers is that they those who now rule the world those who impose this world arrangement on us and many other people of color indigenous people um they don't know themselves because they have convinced themselves that they are white and they could only do that by making us black. And, they, and, and that whiteness is a construction. They themselves are alienated from their own heritages, their own authentic heritages. And they have to ask themselves why they have done that to themselves. They will never heal and be whole as long as they continue to identify themselves as white. But that's what they need to sustain this world order that they have. Right? So... I personally don't believe that we can look to them and their values as a way 
toward liberation. How can we do that? I mean, look at what democracy has shown itself to be under Donald Trump. And all Donald Trump is a, is, is a mirror of America, right? When James Cone calls whiteness the Antichrist, you know, and, and, and my students get upset and I say, well, why would you get upset? He's not calling Polishness the Antichrist. He's not calling um, 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 Italianness the Antichrist, Irishness the Antichrist. He's calling whiteness the Antichrist. And if you ask people of African descent, if you ask Elijah Muhammad, who saw, learned that his father was uh, thrown across the railroad um, tracks cut in half, if you ask him what whiteness means to him, the only thing he could say is the, 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 the most evil, it is the epitome of evil. What else would he say? If you ask the indigenous people who were given blankets deliberately with smallpox on their trail, moved away from their natural homes across the country, uprooted and disoriented from their land, what does whiteness mean to them? The only thing they can say is colonization and evil. What else would they say? And so my point is, you think you're white. You needed to be white, James Baldwin said. Those who needed to be white. And that's that concept, that construct has done nothing but afford power, control, destruction, genocide, enslavement, colonization, domination. Because you had another identity before you made yourself white. But whiteness did something for you. And so how can we follow that? Democracy operated in this country while African people were being bought and sold on, on, on auction blocks. How can we follow that? It has revealed itself as totally bankrupt. And so for me, the only thing the, wor the world can do at this point is to really rediscover what the indigenous religions and cultures of the world have taught us, that there must be balance. There must be balance. Human excess, human greed must be curbed. There are reasons that there are taboos in indigenous religions. There are reasons for that because humans will go and go and go if we don't have ethical norms and actual consequences for greedy behavior. If we don't have that, human, human greed will go on and on and on. And what we've seen under Donald Trump is even democracy that supposedly has these checks and balances can absolutely be violated. And if anybody knows that, it's indigenous people of this country and it's people of African descent. It's been violated from the very beginning for us, at least their ideal of democracy. So for me, we have no choice, Jay. We have no choice but to discover what the place where the first being that was walking on fours decided to get up and walk on twos knows. What those people know, their intelligence, their spiritual intelligence, their wisdom about what it means to live and to survive and to thrive, what the place that made a click a word can offer us, that's a word in some parts of Africa, to utilize the fullness of oral capacity to communicate. Some people would want to look at that as primitive. And no, I see that as intelligence. And so I don't, I, I don't see that we have a, cho a choice but to do that.
we've 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 never made it in the West. I mean, the few people that they have allowed to to get through. Look at what happens to most of our athletes and and and, and entertainers. I mean, they end up just going down in drugs and all kinds of things, right? It's like you're lucky if you make it through, right? The few people that they let through, all they do is to do that so that they can prove that why can't the others do it? But the systems and structures are in place that are anti-Black, that are anti-African. And so I, I don't believe we have any choice but to rediscover, to have a kind of African renaissance and to rediscover, not in a romantic way, I mean, there, there are aspects of all cultures that are just, that need revision. But to assume that Africans can't revise their own cultures without European involvement is ridiculous, right? So not in a romantic way, but to say that African peoples have values, have norms, have important knowledge that the world needs, that we need as people of African descent, Right? All of this conversation about what's your pronoun and he, she, they. Well, you know what? Most African languages have no gendered pronoun because gender was not important in that way. Gender becomes important. You know what? I I began to think about why is it that when I go to most African countries, the little girls have short haircuts, just like the boys. Because the gender differentiation, it becomes important at adolescence when you're beginning to get yourself prepared for marriage. It's not, it's not that important. And why is it that elder African women often shave their heads? Gender, it kind of slips away again. Not that important. And some would even argue that it's not even important during those years of marriage and procreation and all of that. Some African feminists argue that it's not even important then. You know, anatomical differences are important, says Oyewumi. But, but, but it's even gender. She even argues that the Yoruba didn't have gender. And so we have all this fighting about everybody goes by the he pronoun and this is sexism and patriarchy. We didn't have that in African culture. African women didn't give up their names when they got married. That's all Western. Their last name, they didn't give that up. We didn't have that. And so there's a lot that African culture has to offer the world. A lot that other indigenous cultures have to offer the world. And I think we need to return to some of those wisdoms. What we have in the West is technology without spirituality. And I think that's been very, very dangerous. All right. And just like that, we're at the end of this episode of Black History Year. This podcast is produced by Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. At Push Black, We agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past, history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And I'm guessing you probably feel that that's important too. I mean, here you are at the end of a podcast about black history. You matter, and your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value this work. Push Black exists because we realize we have to take matters into our own hands. And you make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most people give about five or ten bucks a month, but everything makes a difference. Thanks for supporting the work. The Black History Year production team includes Tarek Alani, Patrick Sanders, Leslie Taylor Grover, Jerea Bradley, Brooke Brown, Siobhan Chapman, Tabitha Jacobs, Albany Jones, Brianna Lambach, Graciela Mayo-Latizzi, Courtney Morgan, Zane Murdoch, Aquia Tay, Tasha Taylor, and Darren Wallace. Producing the podcast, we have 
Marcel Hutchins, and Sydney Smith. Joanna Samuels is our audio engineer who also edits the show. And Black History Year's executive producer is Julian Walker. Peace.